We'll hear argument first this morning in number 901059, Simon and Schuster, Inc., versus the members of the New York State Crime Victims Board. Uh, Mr. Rauschberg. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioner, Simon and Schuster, is here today challenging the constitutionality of Section 632A of New York's executive law, commonly known as the Son of Sam Law. The challenge is both to the facial validity of the statute and to its application to Simon & Schuster on the facts of this case. Section 632A was enacted in 1977 and applies to works of expression, and only to works of expression. It applies to books, movies, magazine articles, and the other expressive works that are specified in the statute. Whenever a publisher... Rauschberg, are there other laws in New York that apply to other assets of uh, someone um, who's committed a crime? Not this statute, but other statutes that would make other assets subject to reach under a scheme like this? There there are uh, two sets of statutes that might be responsive to, uh, to your question. First, there is the, the, the statutes that provide uh, tort remedies for all victims of tort, which of course apply to crime victims as, as well. And, and second, it bears mentioning that New York has a law, as I, would, as I would guess most jurisdictions do, that have laws like this. New York has a, a law providing for the forfeiture of, uh, of the proceeds of crime. Of course, there has never been any contention that the forfeiture provision would pertain to uh, the proceeds of, of a book or other expressive work or to royalties for the authorship of a book. But other than that, uh, no. Other than that, there is only this statute selecting speech-related assets for special treatment. Of course, the forfeiture statute does not turn over the, forf- the forfeited uh, proceeds to uh, any particular victim. That's correct. That's correct. The, for- the forfeiture statute provides for forfeiture to the state, but the point I wanted to make is that it never occurred to... Uh, the legislators in New York that the forfeiture statute would pertain to the proceeds of a book contract and, uh, and therefore any suggestion that these, that these are somehow crime proceeds I think is, is simply not correct. Well, Mr. Mr. Rochberg, doesn't the for, does the forfeiture statute, is its reach limited to uh, items that were used in the commission of the crime? Well, it, it applies to both instrumentalities of the crime and proceeds of the crime. And proceeds too? Yes. Absolutely. So that in the example given in one of the briefs under the forfeiture statute, New York could have proceeded against any uh, any profits derived by Mr. Milken from his uh, illegal trading? No, I don't think it could because I... I, I, Oh, I'm sorry. I I misunderstood the question. Profits from illegal trading, uh, assuming that they violated state laws as well as federal laws, would be uh, presumably within the forfeiture provisions of the New York uh, statute. Yes. Yes. The... the, uh, uh, the, statute has, was, the statute has an extremely broad definition of the phrase uh, a criminal. In fact, it, it uses the term person accused or convicted of a crime. And in addition to pl- applying to persons who are accused of crime, it applies to persons convicted, whether of state crimes or of federal crimes. But it goes beyond that to include in its application persons who are acquitted of crimes by reason of uh, insanity. And it also applies to persons who are never charged with crime at all, but who are deemed by the Crime Victims Board to have admitted crimes. All of these various types of authors are treated as persons... Is, is it your understanding that under this particular statute that an author who admitted in the course of a book that 
20 years before he had uh, stolen a pack of cigarettes, that that would bring him under this statute? Absolutely. It, it absolutely would. The, the law has been interpreted by the state courts in New York to contain a special statute of limitations provision that starts the limitations period running anew for any uh, uh, crime victim who wishes to begin a proceeding, collect a judgment, and uh, obtain access to the proceeds of the book, first of all, so the 20-year period would not be a barrier. And second of all, the statute does apply not only to those who are convicted, but to those who, who are found to have admitted crimes in their book. And in this case, in this case, Henry Hill, uh, the, the criminal whose uh, activities triggered the application by the crime board to the, of the statute to Simon & Schuster, is somebody who was cooperating with federal and state prosecutors, was in the witness protection program, and had been immunized rather than being charged with the various activities described in his book. And he was uh, found to be within the description of a convicted person because his book was deemed to contain admissions of crime. If there had been an earlier judgment uh, in favor of the victim that had been satisfied, uh, a judgment for damages caused by the crime, I, I take it... No new cause of action would arise by reason of the publication? Well, the state courts haven't treated that question, and so I suppose there's possibly some room for argument. But I think that's, that's a likely interpretation of the statute. The New York Court of Appeals has interpreted the statute as not being applicable to victimless crimes. And so it would seem not a great step for the statute to be interpreted as not applying to those crimes with victims where the victims have been fully compensated. In, in, well, in your view, we really don't know. Could, could a state, uh, courts through the exercise of their common law jurisdiction, make it an independent tort for a perpetrator of a crime to recount the crime uh, for profit? I think not. I think, I think, I think that such a, such a statute, making a tort out of speech, would be uh, so inconsistent with the concepts of the First Amendment that it would absolutely have to well, be... Suppose in a rape case where the victim is suing for damages, uh, there's been a book... Uh, recounting the lurid details of the crime. Could the jury instruct, uh, be instructed, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the jury not only has the victim suffered anguish, but there was a book about this, and you're entitled to take that into account in giving your damages? I, I think not. I think not. I think this court has held that truthful speech, non-defamatory speech, may be outrageous, may be offensive, and is nonetheless protected by the First Amendment. For example, in the in the uh, Hustler case. Well, but in the Hustler case, there was no antecedent criminal act. I don't think the, the antecedent criminal act is relevant to the question of whether the speech ought to be protected. So, so in your view, a rapist could break into the victim's apartment, rape the victim, and then write a lurid account of it, and the act of writing or the collection of proceeds from the writing uh, could not be independently actionable? I, I say that's right. I say because that, that's correct. Because that's a far, far cry from Falwell, because here there's an antecedent crime. There is an antecedent crime, but the crime is, is a separate act from the authorship of a book. The authorship of a book is an act to be encouraged, not an act to be suppressed. Your, your position a, is that we should encourage books of the kind I've just described? My position is that the First Amendment encourages the writing of all books, and it's not for this court to distinguish between which books... Uh, should be encouraged and which books uh, should not. And more to the point, it's not for the state of New York to decide that books on a specified subject, namely crime, by a specified class of authors, namely criminals, as defined, are books to be discouraged as opposed to encouraged. Well, the First uh, Amendment doesn't, doesn't encourage the writing of libelous books, certainly, does it? It does not. 
Well, uh, what? why isn't this maybe another category of, uh, of books that the First Amendment doesn't encourage? Well, there, there, isn't, there isn't any issue of false statements raised here. The, the concern that I have about the content-based uh, discriminations that this law uh, creates is that it brings about exactly the kind of distortion in the marketplace of ideas that content-based laws are capable of doing and for that reason are abhorrent. There are, there are uh, abortion uh, protesters in Wichita, Kansas, who are committing crimes based on their view of uh, human life. There are animal rights activists in Connecticut who disrupt medical experimentation at U.S. surgical through sabotage and other acts of uh, other criminal acts. There are, there are terminally ill patients whose doctors and whose family members uh, assist them in suicide or sometimes even uh, take action themselves and face criminal charges. There are battered women who uh, respond to violence with violence in return who find themselves indicted. And this law says to Simon & Schuster that if it wants to publish books on the issues of abortion or euthanasia or animal rights or, or women's issues, it can't commission by, books by, by these authors. By these authors. It can't commission these authors to tell their stories, which can be an important part of the public debate uh, on, on those four issues. And that's four examples. New York State says no to Simon & Schuster. Commission books from the victims, from the prosecutors, from the police officers, but not from the victims. Who well, will have it can commission books from the victims. It just has uh, Simon Schuster just has to put the money in escrow, doesn't it, and pay it ultimately not to the uh, criminal defendant but to the victim. Well, by, what we have in this case is a garden variety publishing contract. We have the activities of the press carried on in the way the press has carried on its activities for uh, decades in which a, a contract is made to provide for payment in order to get a work. Now, it is the rare author who's able to work without the assurance of timely compensation. This author, the record shows, expected timely compensation and got it because the statute was not complied with. The record shows that most authors require timely compensation. If you can't compensate an author, you, you, you will get less authorship. Well, Mr. Rauschberg, could a state... Uh pass a law making all income of a convicted criminal subject to uh, escrow to pay victims of his crimes? I think the answer to that is yes, because then we wouldn't have a content-based selection of speech for special treatment that results in a distortion of the, the flow of ideas. This, this is kind of a curious case, because all the payment restriction cases that uh, we've had, I think, stand for the proposition that the state can't limit payments by the speaker uh, to a messenger. And yet, in this case, we have payments uh, to the speaker by the publisher. No, so we've not had that situation, have we? I, I think uh, it is correct to think of Henry Hill as a speaker, but it is also correct to think of Simon & Schuster as a speaker. Simon & Schuster resolved to put out a book that would have a particular kind of anti-crime message that would uh, be an antidote to romanticized versions of crime like The Godfather. Simon & Schuster resolved to utter that speech. Simon & Schuster is a member of the press. Simon & Schuster is a speaker. And in order for Simon & Schuster to have engaged in the speech of publishing this book, which it wished to do, it had to make the payment. You can't say to a publisher, you're free to publish, but you're not free to pay for manuscripts. There won't be any manuscripts, or there'll be precious few uh, if they can't pay for them. So, so we have two speakers here, Hill and Simon and & Schuster. Suppose in Justice O'Connor's uh, situation where there's a statute that affects all income 
it's shown that 90% of the recovery is from um, people who author books after committing crimes or produce movies. Uh, it, I, I suppose it's possible that at some point an apparently general statute could be uh, shown to be, in fact, aimed at speech. But I don't think that's what ha would happen here. The, the instances of criminals profiting from crimes through the authorship of books are nil. It's not the kind of thing that happens. There have, this law has been in effect since 1977. And in its 14 years, the state of New York has established exactly six escrow accounts, one of which was returned to the criminal because no victims came forward, four of which are still there waiting to see, and only one of which has produced any payments to a victim. So there's been the victims of precisely one criminal who have been advantaged by the statute. So a general statute, if there were a general statute enacted, that would help victims obtain compensation through uh, enhancing their ability to get at all the assets of the criminals, we see there'd be uh, uh, precious few examples of books, but all of the assets that criminals have, the millions of a Michael Milken or an Ivan Bosky, uh, and whatever other assets criminals have, would all be better reached by victims under such a statute. So I don't think we'd find that 90% uh, uh, figure suggested by Your Honor's hypothetical. But wouldn't such a law also discourage the writing of books, although it would do lots of other things too? Well, it wouldn't specifically discourage the authorship of books. Just as... Just as Tax laws generally applied don't uh, 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 discourage the authorship of books. They don't in the general tax laws don't encourage people to engage in remunerative activities other than authorship. They make the playing field equal. And a statute like this, th th let me say it this way. The New York statute says to any criminal in need of funds, don't try to support yourself by writing a book. Support yourself by getting a job. If you had, if you had a statute of general applicability, you wouldn't have that, that impact. I gave before examples of, 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 of criminals whose voices should be heard in the debate on public issues concerning abortion and other subjects. Uh, not all of those people have independent means that permit them to write books without compensation. Most of them, presumably, need, need to earn a living. And a statute of general applicability wouldn't encourage them one way or another. The New York statute says to those people, you have to go to work and you can't spend your efforts writing a book. The New York statute says to Simon & Schuster that you can't compensate those people for books that you want to publish that you deem valuable and results in our not having those books. Um, so can I ask you a question that I, I, maybe is covered in the briefs, but I forget it if it is. It's generated by Justice O'Connor's earlier question. Has Section 10B of the Act been construed, the part, the part that refers to any person who has voluntarily and intelligently admitted the commission of a crime for such, which such person is not prosecuted? Has that been construed by the state court? Well, it, it was applied in this case. It was that definition that was invoked by the crime board to apply the statute to this book, uh, but without any particular discussion elaborating on the meaning. So we don't have any uh, learning beyond what's on the face of the definition. Do you understand itself. that provision to require that the author admit that what he did was, in fact, against the law, or merely must admit facts which the, this commission may determine violated the law? I would understand it to be the latter. Uh, the, the book so that if a businessman described a lot of business activities that were arguably violations of the antitrust laws, <laughs> the commission would decide whether, in fact, that was a violation of law or not, uh, uh, that, even though he thought he was innocent? That's right. I would understand the... Uh, I would understand the the definition to mean that one who admits to having committed acts... That Which the board determines to be criminal. That's right, because uh, Henry Hill in his book doesn't say that I uh, engaged in acts A, B, C, and D and thereby violated section so-and-so of the New York penal law. He says what he did. 
Uh, it may not have presented very difficult questions about whether or not it was a crime, but nonetheless, he says what he did. He describes his, his behavior, and his behavior, as described in his words, was held to be the trigger that uh, led to the application of the statute. Uh, now, now, the interests that New York advances in an effort to justify this uh, content-based uh, law that, in fact, inhibits speech are, are first the interest in victims' compensation, but I think it's clear that that interest can't save the statute. If the existing remedies available to, the, to plaintiffs in civil actions in New York are inadequate to meet the needs of crime victims, it's incumbent upon New York to enhance them generally so that crime victims generally can do uh, better in reaching the assets of uh, criminals and not just enhance them for this one asset that is speech-related. I, I think the state recognizes that, and so it goes on into what is um, a more sophisticated effort to justify the statute, and it says it is wrong for a criminal to be able to profit from a description of his crime in a book while the victim of the same crime remains uncompensated. Now, I think that that is an interest that at bottom rests on the same concerns about victims' compensation. Yes, it is wrong for the victim to go uncompensated while the criminal has the assets from a book, but it's also wrong for the victim to go uncompensated while the criminal has his wages not subject to a wage garnishment or while the criminal enjoys any other assets that he may own. The, the, the victim's claim for damages is a claim that enables him to seize any and all assets of a criminal, uh, except to whatever extent a state passes exemptions for homestead or the like. But with those exceptions, the, the victim's claim on the criminal's assets extends to all of his assets. And, and it's offensive when the victim fails to have that claim satisfied uh, in all of its instances. It is not offensive only when criminals get to keep the proceeds of speech uh, and, and no other proceeds. What if, what if the state, uh, um, I mean, maybe, maybe their, their problem is making uh, the law too narrow. What if they just took out the, the requirement uh, until the victim is totally compensated? What if they just said, uh, we don't think that uh, people should profit from crimes and uh, nobody should make money uh, from the commission of the crime by getting a big... Uh, uh, royalty for describing it, describing his emotions, the emotion of the victim, and all of that. Would that would that law be better in your in your estimation? It wouldn't have the problem you just described. It wouldn't have the problem I just described, but it would have different problems. That would be a law that would declare all of these uh, payments, these royalties, to be crime proceeds. Right. And I, I don't think the legislature can turn them into crime proceeds just by declaration. There has to be an independent consideration because of the First Amendment interests of whether they really are crime proceeds. Well, they're certainly proceeds in the, in the, in the but-for sense. But-for his commission of the crime, he wouldn't have this knowledge that, that, that he's making money on. That's correct, but they're not proceeds of crime in the sense of any proximate cause sense. The, the, let me give you an example. The uh, one book that this law would have applied to had it been enacted earlier is the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, that is a book that recounts Malcolm X's early life of crime as a, as a stick-up artist, as a dope peddler, as a burglar, and then proceeds to describe how he overcame that to become uh, an important leader of the black community. And it is a book that earned royalties because uh, Malcolm X put in the effort to create a compelling account of his life because of his position and fame as a political leader uh, and because of the ideas that he stood for that were of great interest to people at the time. Now, I would suggest that the royalties paid by the publisher to Malcolm X are not crime proceeds. They are instead the earnings of an author in the typical way that authors earn money through being who they are and through the sweat of their brow. This law says that those are all crime proceeds, and I suggest that that's, that that's not correct. 
they're not crime proceeds, and the law that Your Honor is hypothesizing would also treat them as crime proceeds when, in fact, they're not crime proceeds. If New York seriously thought they were crime proceeds, uh, it might have tried to proceed against them under a forfeiture statute. I might add that the New York Court... Wait, would it be possible in your mind to narrow the law somehow to, 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 to cover only those cases that are crime? I mean, you, can you envision no case in which, uh, in which those royalties are crime proceeds? Well, somebody recounting a gory rape just, just, just for the sensationalism of it. Uh, I have difficulty uh, ever considering the proceeds to be proceeds of crime because of the intervening act of authorship. But even if... Even if such, even if such a um, uh, uh, such a work could be uh, imagined, there is the question of whether, in order to protect all of the works, we need we need to tolerate that work as well in service of the First Amendment. I I don't know how a statute could be written without uh, vagueness problems that would single out that kind of a book, assuming it were right to do so. In any event, that's not before us because this law. Uh, in its breath, takes in every mention of crime. Violent crime, nonviolent crime. State, federal, what, they're all in there. Felonies and misdemeanors. Uh, and so it is, it is so far beyond what we're talking there, about. There, there used to be a hypothetical in law school, as I recall, about, uh, about the person who steals. Uh, indeed, uh, it's in the, the, the um, autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini. Uh, you know, he steals uh, gold or bronze or something and, and, and crafts a, a beautiful statue out of it. And this, does the statue belong to the person from whom the bronze was stolen? Uh, and, uh, well, I forget what the answer was. Do you know? What <laughs> I, I, I brought some books with me today. But I have Malcolm X's autobiography, but not Benvenuto Cellini. But I think and, uh, that's the same problem we're talking about here, as, as far as uh, you know, someone who embellishes uh, by his artistry uh, the, uh, the the account of the crime. Well, the, uh, one does more than embellish by artistry the account of a crime in a, in a book like the autobiography of Malcolm X. Or another example would be Gene uh, uh, Harris's uh, book about prison conditions in Bedford Hills, where the point of the book is to discuss the, the effect of prison on the relationships between women and their, uh, and their prisoner women and their children. And they're, because, because in two chapters of the 14 chapters in the book, there's mention of the crime for which she was convicted, uh, the whole book gets treated as though it's crime proceeds. Um, what, what, um, uh, what I also wanted to say about the subject of crime proceeds is that um, the state of New York, excuse me, the New York Court of Appeals dealt with the uh, uh, other ways in which persons who are criminals arguably can uh, capitalize on their expertise. There are criminals who gain notoriety, and as a result of their notoriety, are able to appear on talk shows to sell books, to uh, sell magazine articles, and if they don't mention their crime, uh, New York permits them to have earnings as a result of the notoriety that they gain through crime and doesn't make any effort to uh, get at those earnings. There are also criminals who develop expertise through their uh, criminal activities, like the bank robber Willie Sutton, who was in fact retained as a consultant to banks on bank security. Uh, New York has no interest in that either. If New York were interested in a very broad, uh, novel, expansive definition of crime proceeds, it should do it comprehensively and not single out uh, speech. What the New York Court of Appeals said in dealing with that issue is that it recognized that criminals, in fact, can profit um, in that way, but it, uh, it, it, it said that that's not the point of the law. The point of the law is to seize the proceeds of speech, and it doesn't really explain why. And in effect, what the New York Court of Appeals is saying is that the law is narrowly tailored to seize precisely the proceeds of this speech. I I, I don't think that's a defense of the law. 
I think that's an admission that the law is targeted at speech, and since laws targeted at speech inevitably will deter some of the speech at which they're targeted, uh, it's what condemns the law under the First Amendment. Um, <clears throat> did uh, Hill uh, in this book write about anything except his crimes? Well, yes, he did. He, he wrote about many things. He wrote about uh, uh, how the mob, and when I say the mob, I mean to talk about activities of organized crime mm -hmm. figures other than himself, crime figures that he observed or uh, heard about in his uh, years of leading a life of crime. But he, he wrote about how, how crime figures, figures corrupt politicians. He wrote about uh, a specific uh, judge in the New York State court system who handed out uh, l ludicrously low sentences to organized crime figures. He wrote about how uh, crime figures in prison are able to continue to conduct their prison activities, excuse me, their criminal activities and uh, uh, lead a quality of life. Well, I, I suppose that if the... Uh uh, who, who helped him write the book? N Nicholas Pileggi. I suppose if, uh, if uh, that writer had just been the sole author, uh, that uh, Hill had been perfectly willing to sit down for him with him for 100 hours and then just to be interviewed, it wouldn't, uh, the author could have said the same thing in these books, in this book, without any problem with the law. That's right. This, this, book, this book depended on hundreds of hours of interviews by... Uh, Pileggi of Hill. And had Hill been willing to spend those hundreds of hours uh, without any compensation, whatever, this law wouldn't have applied. There wouldn't have been any payment to Hill that triggered the application of the law. But Hill was not, Hill was not willing to do that. The record shows that Hill, Hill wanted to be paid. Hill wanted a publishing contract. And so in this case, this book, which is a valuable book, which is being called the best crime, but book about crime uh, written in America could only have been written as a result of making payments to the person whose information was essential to its creation. The book doesn't exist without payments to Hill, and the book is a valuable book. I'd like to save the uh, few minutes I have remaining for uh, rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Rauschberg. Mr. Zwickel, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. <clears throat> this, this case and this statute is about criminals profiting directly from their crime. Mr. Hill, who is a convicted criminal as well as an admitted criminal, his book is not simply a book about discussion of admissions of crime, but it's a book about his convictions as well. And the statute applies in his case for both reasons. Mr. Hill and the other people who have, to whom this statute has been applied have committed crimes and have created by their crime directly an asset, an asset which for some of these people is profitable in the retelling. This statute is directed against that asset because that asset is directly attributable to their wrongful conduct. The statute has a compelling purpose because the story here is a story which flows from the wrongful conduct. What, uh, uh, this book uh, told about crimes other than uh, uh, crimes uh, committed by Hill, I suppose. Uh, yes, it did, Your Honor. And uh, uh, what's the justification for... What, what if he hadn't written about any crimes by himself? He And then, just, about, uh, just about crimes of, of his colleagues... He says, I was a member of the mafia, but I never committed a single crime, but I know all these, all, about all these others. 
Well, the, the purpose the purpose of the well, statute is this statute would not have covered it. No, it would not. It, the purpose of the statute is New York's conclusion that when the criminal discusses his crime and is paid money for that discussion. I mean, a crime that he committed. That he committed, that's correct. That the criminal is then profiting directly from his victimization. What the statute does at that point is it doesn't look at the criminal's speech. It turns its attention to the victims of that crime, the people who have been harmed and the people who have been injured. And it says... The underlying premise is that this speech ought to be discouraged. The underlying premise of this statute, Your Honor, no, is that, in fact, if that were the case... Well, isn't the underlying premise that the speech is wrong? No, it's not. In fact, the only premise... The underlying premise is that the speech is right and... The statute is neutral with respect to the speech. What the statute says is that if you... If the criminal wants to discuss his story and say anything he wants but doesn't make a dollar on that discussion, this statute doesn't apply. But the second... But I thought the whole justification for this statute is that the public is outraged by the spectacle of someone profiting by recounting a crime. This is simply unjust. It's outrageous. Well, Your Honor... The whole premise of the act? Part of what you said is true. I think... But if that's true, then you're discouraging the speech, are you not? No, you're not, because there certainly may be outrage. That may exist, but that wasn't the purpose of the statute. The text of the statute and the legislative history shows that the only thing that the legislature focused upon was the unfairness, the inequity. In fact, the statute contains provisions which one might say could encourage criminals to speak. There are incentives in this statute. Mr. Zwickel, the state has certainly singled out speech for a financial burden in this statute. Isn't that true? It has singled out the story of the speech, and it has said that the criminal cannot... And it has imposed a burden only on speech of a particular context. That is true, Your Honor, but the reason... So how do you distinguish this case, then, from taxes such as in Minneapolis Star or Arkansas Writers Project? Well, in those cases, Your Honor, first of all, there was a tax directed against the press's means of publication, which, because of the history of taxation in this country, is presumptively a burden. But here, what... Are you saying this isn't a financial burden? Well, it's an incidental burden. It's a burden because some people will choose not to speak because they're not getting their profits. But that is not the same sort of burden on the means of communicating your message. This statute, you have to understand, is directed at a financial incentive. It's directed at one of the reasons why people choose to speak. We all know... Why does it not... Why should it not have to extend to other ways of profiting from criminal behavior, then? Well... Why just publishing a book? I think the reason it extends there is because the legislature felt that the story of the crime with victims is a direct victimization, and that other profits, which may be dealt with in other ways, did not create the same sort of inequity. When the criminal... When Berkowitz sits down for an interview and talks about why he killed these five people, and then is paid $100,000 for that, it seems to me that New York and the other states can say, well, we can't stop his speech. In fact, 
He has a right to speak, but he doesn't have a right to profit before his victims. Mr. Well, Mr. Swickle, you, you, you speak as though uh, the law very nicely uh, cuts out uh, the profits uh, that he's making because of his recount of the, of the crime, but in fact it doesn't. It, it, it says whatever amount he gets from the whole book. So, you know, the, the Confessions of St. Augustine, he, he recounts how he stole an apple. I assume that, you know, whatever St. Augustine got for that book, uh, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole amount would, uh, would uh, right? The whole thing would, would be considered proceeds of, of, of the apple stealing. Your Honor, that's, that's absolutely correct. This statute... But that's ridiculous. Well, <laughs> what, what, this statute, what this statute does, of course, is it doesn't ask the board to sit down and look at the works and evaluate how much speech is in the work attributable to the crime or what the reason The whole thing is presumed to be the product of the crime. For purposes of of attachment, that's correct. What what the statute does is it applies neutral and objective criteria. It simply says that if you are profiting from this asset, your victims have a right to do what we would like victims in this country to do more often, to go to court and bring a civil action, and if they recover a judgment, that ju- you, you now have this asset placed in escrow. You have an identifiable asset. The victim now has a reason to sue the criminal because he knows that the state is holding the money. All the victim is doing under this statute, Your Honor, is that he is filing a civil action for his damages and injury. If he recovers for that action based on his harm that the criminal has caused him, it shouldn't matter what part of the book is based on the actual crime. The critical component here is that we are not dealing with speech. This is not a statute which is aimed at publishers to try and stop the publishers from publishing the book. The record in this case shows that many criminals will speak and will continue to speak with these statutes. The publishers keep their profit. The publishers are not compelled to edit material out of the book. But yes, there is a financial aspect to this. We don't deny that. And we don't deny the fact that some criminals will say, if you can't guarantee me my profits, I'm not going to tell my story. But the critical issue for this case and for this court is whether or not New York has appropriately balanced the competing interests and arrived at a statute which is narrowly tailored and targeted to this compelling purpose. And the the purpose is, again, Mr. Zwickel? The purpose, Your Honor, is to ensure that People who commit wrongful acts do not profit directly from their victimization. And I, I take it in New York, with the, supposing Billy the Kid had lived in New York when this statue was in effect. If, if he had written about the 21 men that he killed, uh, he would be subject to this statue. That's if he wrote about travels in the Southwest and said nothing about these 21 men, he would not be subject to the statute. Yet ordinarily, a, a victim uh, should be able to get a hold of either of the, those proceeds. Your, Your Honor, you're absolutely right, and, and we're certainly not saying that victims should not have opportunities to get it notoriety. But this statute focuses. Notor- notoriety is... Well, why why does New York distinguish between those two kind of books written by a, a criminal? I, I believe that... The essential reason is because New York saw the story, the asset from the story, as, as a direct 
relationship to the victim. Kind of inflicting injury on the victims all over again, so to speak? I, well, we, you talk about injury on the victims, but the, the injury that this statute addresses, and there's obviously a temptation to say this statute is based upon the offensiveness of what the criminal is saying. But, but that's not what this statute was targeted well, at. The statute was targeted at... If Billy the sorry, Kid uh, wasn't writing about uh, his crimes, but about travels in the West, and he made a lot of money out of them, I suppose uh, if, if he had hurt some victims, the victims could sue him. If, and, uh, but they're gonna, they very likely uh, were gonna, would have to prove their case before they could attach the money. That's, that's correct. And well, the state of New York if, here takes it in advance. Well, it, it certainly does, but, but the, the key factor here you also have to uh, recognize is the plight, the plight of victims, Your Honor. We, we have a situation where there are two critical components of this statute. First of all, it preserves the asset at the time that the money is paid. In many of these cases, the money is paid to the criminal years before the story is produced. That money might very likely be dissipated. This statute ensures that it's held in escrow. The second thing that's critical about this statute is that this statute extends the statute of limitations so that we all know about the story that's, that comes years after the criminal is released and after the statute of limitations has expired. The victims in that situation have no remedy. Under this statute, they do have a remedy, but the remedy is limited to the in-rem proceeding against the proceeds. The third critical component as to why this statute serves New York's purpose so well is that it gives victims' judgments a priority over the judgments of other creditors. Do you, do you, do you agree it's fair to say that the object is not to preclude the criminal from directly profiting? The object is simply to preclude him from profiting before the victims get paid. It's a, it's a, it's a victim compensation justification, that's, not a non-profit justification. That's absolutely right. There, there are... So all, everything you said, really, about directly profiting is, is, is essentially beside your point. Well, it, it's a combined interest. It's, it's directly profiting before your victims, Your Honor. If, if the victims' judgments are less than the money in the account, the criminal gets what's rem, what remains in the account. Um, May I ask you a question? Which is, which is another reason. Let me May say, I interrupt you with, sorry, a, with a slightly different question? You, I'd like to focus a little more precisely on the state's interest involved here. One, of course, is to compensate victims, and you've talked about that mostly today. But in your brief, you start out with the principal argument that a wrongdoer should not profit from his or her wrong. And if that were a sufficient justification, the statute should be applied to victimless crimes as well as those that have victims. Should that, that's correct, Your Honor, and, and it does not. But do, you think it could, do you think it could constitutionally be applied to victimless crimes? Yes, I, I do. I, I think that... Why that, didn't the uh, state do it, do you suppose? Well, because I think the, the interest that the state focused upon, which, which is the critical interest here, is the unfairness of the criminal profiting before his victims. This is not a statute designed simply to tell criminals you can't profit at all. In fact... Do you think the interest in preventing the criminal from profiting from his wrong would be sufficient, which would mean, as I understand it, that no matter how trivial the wrong, no matter how great the reward from writing the book, you could still appropriate the entire reward? I, I do. I, I, think, I think states um, and the federal government have valid interests in stopping criminals from profiting from crime. But this statute is, is a more narrowly tailored statute in that respect. This statute 
allows the criminal to obtain any money that's left in the account. What this statute does, as Justice Souter pointed out... Just isn't victims, though, that, can, that have access to the escrow. It's, it's uh, judgment creditors, any judgment creditors. Well, that's true, but, but there's, a, there's a critical reason for that. Well, what the statute does... But also, the, 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 uh, uh, the state can get unpaid taxes out of the escrow. What, Your Honor, that's, that's, that's true, but what this statute does, first of all, with respect to other judgment creditors, it doesn't extend the statute of limitations. But more importantly, the, the unsatisfied judgment creditor, who's, who normally stands in line before the victim, under this statute, stands in line after the victim. The reason why the statute discusses judgment creditors is to make sure that the judgment creditor comes after the victim's judgment. That's the only reason why the statute discusses it. It establishes a priority. So under well, this... it certainly reduces the chance that the uh, writer is going to have anything left over. It's, that's, that's possible, but, but there, there are two possible, aspects of that. It's possible if there's a judgment creditor, he's going to get paid. Well, he, he might not, but we're, we're talking in some of these cases about substantial sums of money. Um, we hear reports of, of criminals making a half a million dollars, a million dollars or more, but what, what this statute addresses is that the money is held in escrow and the criminal brings his civil tort action for his injury and suffering. It is very hard for us to see that the victims who have been injured by the crime, who have suffered from this crime, should not have the right to pursue a tort remedy and know that there's an asset which flows directly from their victimization, which the board is holding. That's why this statute is such a meaningful statute, and frankly, I think that's you, why the you, statute... You keep saying an, accent, an asset that flows directly from their victimization. That's correct. But, but, but you acknowledged before that the entire amount of that asset doesn't flow directly from their victimization. The You're, entire advance is covered, even though there's only one minor incident re, uh, addressed in the book. Isn't that right? Your Honor, that's right. Indeed, even if some of the advance, advance covers, uh, covers expenditures for paper, pencils... Uh, for, for expenditures for the production of the book, uh, that would still be swept up into the escrow, right? Well, yes, but the statute... So it is not just the direct product of the crime that's covered at all. Well, it, Your Honor, it, it is because the crime is in the story, but you're right. The statute, the statute does apply an objective neutral criteria. It does not seek to look at the work and say how much of this work is related to the crime. The reason, again, for that, let me let me try to emphasize, is that the statute simply attaches the asset. If the victim sues and recovers a very limited judgment, then there will be a substantial sum of money available for this person. That, that seems to me that a better way to describe it instead of constantly referring to it as the, 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 the product of the crime is to say that it is an asset tainted by the crime. I guess that's... Uh, isn't that quite a bit more accurate? Well... I, I don't think New York looks at, at this asset in terms of what taint might suggest. I think it really does look at it in a very neutral way. And, and I do want to emphasize again that this statute is not simply limited to one type of book or one type of speech. It is, it is a broad-based statute which applies in any context where a criminal is profiting from the story of his crime. It applies to magazine publishers, it applies to interviews, it applies to any situation. And all this statute says is that if 
you have victimized someone, and if someone is paying you for that victimization, whether or not it's a small part or a large part, then your victims come first. They have a right to go against this asset. We will preserve this asset for your victims, and we will take steps so that the victims can go ahead and sue the criminal. That is, that is why the statute, we believe, meets strict scrutiny as well as O'Brien's scrutiny. The statute is targeted precisely to its purpose, and its purpose is both a legitimate purpose and a compelling one. For, for these reasons, Your Honors, um, we ask that the judgment of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals be affirmed for the reasons set forth in our, belief, in our brief. If there are no further questions. Thank you very much. Very well, Mr. Zwickel. Uh, Mr. Rauschberg, you have rebuttal. You have two minutes remaining. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to say a word about the uh, statement that Hill had been, had been convicted of crimes. The book makes a reference to a conviction for attempted larceny, and since it's an attempt by definition, I suppose it was unsuccessful and there was no victim. It makes a reference to a gambling conviction, which the board also might hold to be victimless crimes. The board placed its uh, judgment below only on the admission of crimes. There wasn't a word about uh, any convictions, and if it addressed convictions, it might well uh, hold them irrelevant. Um, the last, I take it that uh, your argument would be, this, would, be, would be the same or almost the same, even if in this book uh, only crimes that Hill committed were, uh, were described. Uh, yes, it would be about the same. And if, if Hill had, in fact, been convicted of crimes and that were the basis for the law being applied here, then one of the interests that the Court of Appeals of New York has identified, namely punishment, uh, might be triggered. I, I did want to emphasize the fact that the New York State Court of Appeals says that this statute is designed to punish. I don't think it's well tailored to do that, as our brief states, but in any event, New York cannot determine to punish the mentally ill those who, and those who are never charged, like Hill, who are not convicted. But so you... Here, I take uh, earlier. I think you said that if uh, if uh, a person has committed a, a very brutal crime, a perfectly sane, and he just makes some money out of uh, out of uh, writing about it while he's in prison, uh, uh, you say the First Amendment forbids the application of this law to him. Yes, yes, I do say that, and I say we have to tolerate whatever offense we take in that circumstance in order in, in order to have the valuable speech that we have when. Other criminals like Henry David Thoreau, uh, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, and many others named in our briefs uh, have written books that make reference to their crimes. Thank you, Mr. Rauschberg. The case is submitted.